Welcome in, AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent number one self-proclaimed podcast dedicated to the AWA, the American Wrestling Association, reliving and bringing back all the memories of a promotion that we feel here personally is uh, one of the most spectacular and frankly, maybe one of the most overlooked. Uh, But uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying it. My name is Chris Tubbs, but I'm just one part of it because we are now a one two three-man crew because we've got Mick Karch and the one and only Polish Joe Chupik. And uh, guys, these are always the fun ones to do because this is a listener submitted. This is all about the questions that our listeners and the fans want to know. This is a no DQ&A. And Mick, I know you know about it, but uh, Joe, I this is your this is your first Q and A, so I think you're gonna have some fun with it. I think there are some things that I feel are gonna be right in your wheelhouse. Sounds good. Let's get right to it. I, let's answer some questions. Got a little uh, little birthday greeting though first, as as they say on uh, on social media, happy heavenly birthday, and. Yes. Uh, Hard to believe that uh, the champ of all champs, Mr. Bockwinkle, Dick Bockwinkle, would have been celebrating his 88th birthday today uh, as this show drops. And uh, needless to say, I have a, a little bit of a partiality towards, uh, towards Mr. Bockwinkle, and I know that Joe has some fond memories uh, again, you know, time flies. It seems like just yesterday that I uh, that I spoke with Nick, but uh, every December six, want to acknowledge, want to acknowledge his birthday. Oh dear God, that uh, that picture goes back to 1972, ladies and gentlemen. So we are 50 years plus. Wow, uh, that's that's when I had uh, letters coming out of my head uh, back in the day. <laughs> Uh, that is at the old Calhoun Beach Hotel uh, with Nick, and uh, 50 years is just extraordinary, let alone, you know, it's, since 2015 that Nick has not been here. Can't believe it's been seven years. Well, look at that. How, yeah, I think that's how a lot of us will remember him and you. Well, that's the way that I'll remember him. Um <laughs> And, and the man had the balls to claim that that was his Oriental sleeper. Now, you notice he has four of my five chins being pushed up to my eyeballs. And uh, that was not a comfortable situation. And for some reason, Nick kept saying, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And <laughs> it was at uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. But that kind of exemplifies my relationship with Nick over the years. Love the guy. Uh, Joe, I know that you have fond memories as well. Oh God! I, I, too many. We I, we could do an entire episode on on Nick, um, the, the the joys uh, that I had, ah. uh, and Darlene love love her. What an, a phenomenal couple! Um, God, I, I just I, I I'm in shock that it's seven years. I know. I, time just wow, we blink and and here you go. But no, Nick. One of the classiest gentlemen had great stories, and always was always nice to me. From the very first time I met him, and I've shared it on here before, when 
I told him that I grew up hating him and his reply was, well then young man, I must have done my job well. We, boom, we hit it off from there. He's at my housewarming, uh, was my insurance guy, uh, was at my wedding. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, Nick, miss you. Yeah, I got one more picture, you guys, that I wanna I wanna put up, and and you guys know this is probably my favorite out of uh, all of the pictures, and uh, I think you guys know where I'm going with it. I mean, honestly, out of all of the pictures, this might be my favorite because it just, to me, it just looks like it's three friends, Ray, Nick, and uh, Red Bastion. It just looks like they're just. They're natural. They're having fun, and it's just a very joyful, happy picture. And this, out of all of them we've had, this honestly, guys, I love this one. Like this, we could incorporate this into every podcast, and I would be just thrilled. That is one of my favorite pictures as well. I'm not sure if that was at Cauliflower Alley Club. Uh, may have been, uh, but Red Bastine, Nick Bockwinkel, Ray Stevens, great friends, all three of them, and of course. You know, who would know it in uh, 71 and 72, 73 here in the AWA area, Nick and Ray, of course, were feuding with Red Bass mm-hmm. and uh, his tag team partner, the Crusher. But uh, as I said to you, Chris, before we went on the air, that exemplifies the good old boys. That exemplifies the business, the camaraderie, the brotherhood yeah. and uh, love the picture. Love the picture. My first reaction when I saw that picture, my first thought, I could hear Ray's guttural, oh. infectious laugh. Oh my God. He, that man never grew up, and I loved him for yeah. that. He was a kid right up to the very end, sadly. Uh, he went way too early. Yeah. Um, but I, maybe not surprisingly, um, the way that Ray liked oh. to live. <laughs> Ray's, Ray's whole life was on fast forward, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great, great picture. And again, Bach, thank you for everything and happy birthday, champ. Agreed. All right. That being said, we've got a no DQ&A. We're going to do this in back-to-back weeks, you guys. So we're going to do half of them this week, and then we're going to do the other half next week because there was just... just an overflowing of response. And sometimes we kind of carry these over. So we're actually going to do part of them. We're going to do it back to back. So uh, I figure that's probably going to be the best way. This way you guys can try and get your, uh, your questions answered as much as possible, but let's go ahead and kick it off. I'm going to bring up my document. And the first one is going to be for you, Joe uh, from Dan Houston. Did you ever have an opportunity to work with Eric Bischoff? Uh, well, first of all, hello, Dan. And yes, I had the opportunity to work with Eric Bischoff. Um, when he first came to the AWA, he had, he and uh, um, uh, Sonny Ono had uh, a game called Ninja Star Wars, where you wore a Velcro vest and had Velcro stars, and you would throw it at each other and had a face shield to protect your eyes. Uh, <clears throat> that photo is from a, uh, a heavy on wrestling show that uh, uh, I was a part of in, right before 
the pandemic uh, really kicked into gear. Um, but no, I, I worked with Eric for years. In fact, I was there the instant that Eric went from a behind the scenes person to an on-air personality. We had an interview day and uh, Larry Nelson just didn't show up. I ended up calling and saying that, yeah, I'm done, I'm not coming in, I'm, I'm going down to Florida. And so I remember standing in the control room and uh, Greg and Vern going, well, what the fuck are we going to do? Well, Eric throws in the old, I'll do it. They're, they're like, we don't have another choice. So um, Nick, or Nick, um, Eric ran to uh, the nearest uh, drugstore, uh, got <laughs> black hair dye, dyed his hair and he i mean eric was gray at like 20 okay and so he went and dyed his hair and you know he did pretty darn well right out right off the bat uh, i worked with him uh, he ended up staying uh late a couple of times few days actually worked with him on timing and delivery and so forth but eric did a great job um I'm still, Eric, what happened to me coming down to produce WCW? Yeah, that's, I talked <laughs> that picture with Heavy on Wrestling. That's a whole nother story. But well, uh, I, I mean, you know, maybe maybe the next show that WCW runs, yeah. I'm, you're probably on standby for that one, Joe. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right, uh, next one is for you, Mick, uh, from Steve Covenant. Who was more popular in the AWA, Hulk Hogan, Bobby Heenan, or The Crusher? Wow. I'll give you three different answers. Uh, because you're talking really apples and oranges. Uh, as far as Hulk Hogan was concerned, for the relatively short time he was in the AWA, I don't think anybody had, had more of an impact more quickly and was selling out buildings faster and more consistently than Hulk Hogan. I mean, there was no no question about it. In that era, era the you know, 1981, 1982, you couldn't touch Hogan, uh, nor could you find a, a seat at, at St. Paul. So Hogan's kind of an anomaly because he was here for a short time. Um, as far as Bobby Heenan is concerned, I don't know if popular would be the word, um, but certainly successful and one of the, well, the greatest character mm -hmm. in AWA history in terms of longevity. Bobby was here for a long, long time, 17, 18 years uh, on and off. Uh, he was not the cartoon character that he became in the WWF. Uh, he was a hated heel. And, uh, and, I, but, and I think that's interesting, Mick, because he's popular now in hindsight because we appreciate, respect what he did. But at the point, like, he was everybody just hated him. And now you look back, you're like, everybody, nobody says anything bad about Bobby Heenan, but back in the day, nobody would say anything good about Bobby Heenan. You know, not only was he a master of the craft, but you hit it right on the head, Chris. We didn't know how good we had it. You know, as we look back and in this day and age of wrestling managers, if there are any, you know, they're a handful. Um, they don't make much of an impact as far as putting asses in the seats. Uh, but Bobby certainly did that. Uh, the number three guy, 
I, I guess he's probably the most popular wrestler in AWA history. And I, I'm talking not only in terms of longevity, but just his overall impact on the business. There's a little mini view of him, but nobody, and Joe, we've talked about this, nobody did it like the Crusher. He was every man, everybody could identify with Crush. And, uh, you know, he was here as a hated heel in the 1950s as one of the Lasowski brothers came back as a, a hated heel again as the Crusher in the early 1960s. And then from 1965 on, for the next 30 years, uh, he was the ultimate babyface. When the promoter needed a guy to come in and run roughshod and clear the area of the, uh, of the heels, the call went out to the Crusher. And uh, nobody, I don't think, and I and this includes Vern, I don't think anybody is more legendary in the AWA than the Crusher. Um, one of my uh, earliest memories of the Crusher was when Mad Dog was uh, in the ring and Crusher comes walking out. He's got dog food and he's walking around the ring and he's throwing dog food into the ring with uh, against Mad Dog. I remember laughing when I saw that. And of course, turning to my mom and say, we got to get tickets to go and see that match. Right. Uh, so I love Crusher being Polish Joe. He was um, Crusher Lazowski or the Crusher uh, uh, personal, my personal all time favorite mm -hmm. because of the Polish connection. Uh, here's another question for both of you guys. Uh, who do you feel from Barry Isaacson? Who do you guys feel were the most underrated tag team champions in AWA history? Uh, Joe, I'll let, you, I'll let you go first. Uh, you know, two teams come to mind. And it, it it's sort of strange that uh, I would say that they were underrated because both teams actually carried these straps. Um, so it... it Sort of tough to say that, well, hey, they, 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 they were underrated. But I don't think we really appreciated how good they were. The first team, and I would put at the top, was Playboy Buddy Rose, Doug Pretty Boy Summers, with their manager, Sherry Martell. Um, those three, uh, and in particular the tag team, I mean, Buddy, all 271, sorry, 217 pounds, the stuff that Buddy could do, he could do a kid. I mean, he's he was the Pillsbury Doughboy. I can't believe Pillsbury did not have him be the real life version of the of the Doughboy. But Buddy was a phenomenal athlete. He could do a great interview, and he was somebody when you looked at him, it's like this guy can't wrestle. He can't. He can't perform. He can't sell. But damn, he did it. He did it well. And the same with Doug Summers. Uh, very, very good at his craft. Um, and of course, Sherry, that speaks for itself. You put the three of them together. Uh, phenomenal. The other tag team was actually uh, right at the end of the AWA run uh, that I thought, uh, and they ended up going on to the WWF, but it would have been Mean Mike Enos and Wayne the Train Bloom, the Destruction Crew. Hold on, wait a second, Mike, I got this. I still, when I talk to people, and they, they, they will still, well, when they find out that I worked for the AWA, it's the Mad Dog Pine Box interview, what was Crusher and Vern like, and then they would always eventually get to the interviews that the, that the destruction yeah. crew 
did. And the one thing on the interviews that impressed the living hell out of me, when me and Mike Enos would extend, you know, I'll just do it into the camera, extend the, he'd have a sledgehammer, a full-size sledgehammer, and it was a real sledgehammer. He'd extend his arm out, and then he would turn it, and then, boom, it would he would kiss the head of the sledgehammer and move it back up. And so finally I asked him, I, I, Mike, how tough is that? He hands me the sledgehammer. I think I got down about three inches. I said, no, no, I'm not doing this. I want to keep my teeth. My face is ugly enough already. I don't need to damage it any further. So the destruction crew and Playboy Buddy Rose and Doug Pretty Boy Summers, my two most underrated tag teams in the AWA. I would completely agree with Rose and Summers, and I've said this before. You know, it's all a matter of timing. And I think Rose and Summers, uh, had they been in the AWA earlier than they were, uh, probably would have gotten more notoriety. But sadly, the business was changing a little bit by the time they hit their stride in 1986. Um, no question about it. A couple of ring generals that had already been in the business for 15, 20 years before they hit it big in the AWA. Uh, their matches with the Midnight Rockers, absolutely off the charts, bloodbaths. And again, you know, timing is everything. And Rose and Summers in the history of the AWA will never get the credit mm -hmm. that they deserve, but damn, they were good. Uh, absolutely the most underrated. All right, here's a follow-up from Barry, you guys. And, uh, Joe, I'll have you answer this one uh, first again. If you take Billy Robinson out of the equation, who do you think should have had a stint as AWA world champion but did not? Oh, wow. That's a, a, a tough one. But I'm going to go back to the early 70s. And a gentleman who the claw master Baron Von Roschke, but the heel version of Baron Von Roschke, not the, uh, not the baby face in later years. And I say the heel version, that version right there. I say the heel version because while, while Baron, I wouldn't exactly call him uh, an elite ring technician, uh, I think the heat that he had and the way that he conducted himself as the hated German uh, back when you could still, uh, you know, go that route in professional wrestling. Uh, he and his partner, Horst Hoffman, I, I grew up hating them. Of course, again, I'm going to throw out the whole Polish Joe thing. And, you know, so they were the hated Germans. But, you know, looking back, it's like, I think he could have had a nice run. You always want to have a, a, a heel with the strap on him during, um, shall we say, during the school year from September through May and then maybe drop it to a, a baby face after that. But I think it could have been a good run. And, uh, you know, bearing with his cheating in dastardly ways. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, remember that Bobby Heenan was Baron's um, manager. I, I, Mick, was it here in the AWA? That was in the WWA for Bruiser. That's what I thought, Bruiser's territory. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then I've, I've seen some of those interviews, and it's like, I, God, I thought it would—it could have been a really good run for Baron. Yeah, I feel like they, they could have been printing money with a heel. But when you when you lay it out like that, Joe, I feel like that would have been a really good opportunity to kind of take Baron to the next level at that point. 
No question about it. And and I would agree with Joe as to Bear on the Heel. Man, he was hated back in the day. And of course, you know, wrestling fans, I've said before, we were still, you know, still fighting the war uh, back in the uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and Baron outside the ring, talk about a guy whose personality belies the character that he uh, he performed as. Another guy that I would say would have been an excellent uh, champion, even as an interim champion back in 1971-72, would have been this man, Ivan Koloff, the Russian bear. And I say that because Ivan, was, he came to the AWA fresh off what was arguably the biggest upset in wrestling history at the time when he defeated Bruno Sammartino at Madison Square Garden. He came into the AWA. He was managed by Stan Crusher Kowalski. He had phenomenal feuds with Vernon, Billy Robinson, and so on and so forth. I think even in the short term, uh, you know, Ivan, the hated Russian. And again, Ivan was Canadian. Uh, you know, there was not, a, not any Russian in, uh, in Ivan, but he played that dastardly foreign villain to uh, uh, an absolute extreme and also, like Baron Von Raschke, outside the ring, as soft-spoken and as nice a guy as you would ever want to meet. So I'm a huge Ivan Koloff fan, and I, I think he could have had a good run, even a little short run here in the AWA. I like that pick, Mick. I do. All right. Question five. Can you talk about this experience, Joe? And I'm going to see if I can bring it up here. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm doing, full disclosure. But I believe uh, this. Ah, there it is. Can, can, you, uh, can you explain what it is that we're looking at? No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me exit full screen, okay? Now, uh, can you do that thing that you just did? Uh, yes, that's going to be our thumbnail right there. there so... Proceed. Would you like to see the graphic again? I don't even want to hear the mention of white water. I didn't Scott. say it. I did not say it. Okay, this is this this is not like the Candyman where you say white water, white water, white water, and like something uh, bad happens. White water. <laughs> we did a TV shoot um, in in White Water, and it was without a doubt the worst AWA video production I was ever a part of. And that includes the pink walls for the Teen Challenge series. I mean, production-wise, we, we didn't have the regular truck that we had rented. We didn't have the regular crew. In fact, the crew, I think they might have gotten some college students from Whitewater to do it. But it was atrocious. I remember bringing the tapes back to the studio, putting them up, and dreading shuttling through <laughs> it to see if I could do anything to make a TV show. Uh, I, I shuttled through. I, I did a spot check, and I go into my boss at the time, uh, Mike Shields. I go in his office. I go, Mike, is, can we can we do replays? I mean, something besides Whitewater, Wisconsin. He just looked at me, he goes, Vern spent thousands. I don't think he's going to go for it. So um, 
in, in, in classic Vern and Mick, I think you can, uh, you might have seen Vern do this once or twice, but uh, I went into his office. I said, Vern, can you please come into the control room and take a look at Whitewater? And, and he, he, I shuttle to the first match. <sighs> Vern looks at me. He just goes, geez. And, and well, that's why he, he was helped them go bald. But I just said, Vern, what do you want to do? He goes, ah, we got to air it. He goes, I, I don't know what else to do. He goes, what the hell happened? I said, I don't know. I, I've been in the business for about two, three years. I want to say it was about 87, Mick, 86, 87. When my it daughter. was uh, Halloween 87. Halloween of 87. So I had literally been in the business, in video production and in the NWA for just for two years. So production truck wise, I'm not an engineer. I wasn't then and I'm not now. Um, so when, when you see the horrible images and the pictures coming through, what do you do? Yeah, I, I did my job. Uh, I always did the graphics for the Chiron and I just hoped that it would look better on the back end. Uh, <laughs> nope. Well, on so many levels, you know, when Mike Shields said that Vern Gagne spent thousands on that uh, TV taping, the reality is I think Vern went into the Dollar Tree and got some Rayovac batteries uh, for the lighting and the camera and uh, probably demanded his change <laughs> as well. Um, that was also the infamous taping where uh, Vern on microphone, the microphone was right up close and personal. Uh, Vern says, as he watched JT Southern do some kind of a move in a battle royal that he wasn't supposed to do, Vern says, God damn it, he's fired. He'll never work here again uh, on, a, on a live microphone. Uh, that is also where some way or another a guy was dressed in a nun outfit, in a nun habit, and managed to make all three weeks of the TV taping. Uh, I saw Jerry Lawler at Cauliflower Alley many years ago, and I said, Jerry, I was a part of that taping. He said, my God, and you didn't go hang yourself. So um, not the best uh, not the best moment in AWA history. Wisconsin Whitewater, apropos that it was Halloween, 1987. You know, it was so bad, and I am a glutton for punishment. I might have to check it out on YouTube. I've not seen anything from Whitewater intentionally since those shows aired back in 1987. How about we do a watch along? How about we do a watch along from Whitewater? Oh, that, well, are you supplying the Pepto-Bismol ahead of time? I don't know. I mean, I, should we do it? I've got a migraine already. Sure. Sure. Let's, yeah, do, it. let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We're going to do a watch along of maybe the worst night of AWA production in history. Mystery we'll, Science, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get that. AWA version. There we go. We will, uh, yeah, Mr. Oh, yes, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Whitewater version. I love it. Okay, for, for you, Mick, from Shelly Brand, uh, says she's a fan going back to the 1960s. First crush was Rene Goulet. Oh, Is my. he still with us? Yeah, there's a name. Rene Goulet, uh, early 1960s. Rene Goulet was uh, billed out of Nice, France. Uh, he was actually Bob Bradard uh, out of Canada. And a tremendous veteran wrestler. When he came into the AWA in the early 1960s, he was the ultimate 
baby face. Uh, that's actually a little bit later on. That might even be a 1970s picture of Renee, but he came in and feuded with the Crusher head on in, I believe, 1964. And Renee had a little bit of a transformation uh, over the years from the from the baby face. And I believe we got uh, coming up there. We'll have a photo of the transformation. And there he is. He transformed to Sergeant Jacques Goulet uh, as part of the uh, the French Foreign Legion, of course. And he came into town and he feuded with uh, some guy who had a boombox with him. Uh, Rene Goulet, one of the great veterans in wrestling. But sadly, uh, Rene passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, you talk about a ring general. He did it all in the business. He knew everybody. He went everywhere. And, uh, yeah, sadly, Rene no longer here. I uh, didn't, um, wasn't he given the nickname by, I don't know if it was the boombox guy or maybe it was uh, Crusher. I don't know why I'm saying that, but Pepe Le Pew. Uh, the boombox guy gave him the name of Pepe Le Pew, which really, if you think about it, was kind of like the pot calling the kettle black. But It was projecting by the boombox guy. There we go. There yeah. we go. Let's move on. All right. Yeah. And uh, this one is for you, Joe, from Alex Bailey. Uh, when the WWF was expanding and Mean Gene and Al DeRusha went to uh, work for them, did they ever approach you and offer you a job? No. Uh, I mean, I didn't start till 85. So uh, Mean Gene was gone already. Al was gone already. Uh, Al came back. Uh, he was only at the WWF for about a year. And Al came back and directed uh, Wrestle Rock April 20th of 1986. But I think, um, in just pure speculation on my part, why would the WWE want a guy who's only been in the business for, you know, a year or two, a couple of years, a few years, uh, to come and work for him? Um, I suppose if they really wanted to try and, um, you know, stab Vern or stab the AWA in the back uh, even more to, hey, let's just, Let's hire this the, the production guy and, and, you know, really make Vern scramble. Um, didn't happen. Um, and you know what? I, I, it would have been interesting to see if I would have gotten asked if I would have moved out to, uh, uh, to the East Coast and, and done it. But no, um, you're, in answer to your question, Alex, I was never approached about working for the WWF. Yeah, and, and that's my question. Like, if they would have called you, how seriously would you have entertained? Because, I mean, at that point, you know, yeah, you would have just started, you know, you would have been young in the business. But, I mean, it's to, to uproot everything and go out there. I mean, that, that's that's a huge commitment for a lot of unknowns. Well, I started with the AWA. When I started with the AWA, I was only 20 years old, October 7th, 1985. And so uh, I had, um, I was single, um, didn't. I had deep roots here in Minnesota, um, but in the words of uh, Mr. Garlic himself, Sheik Adnan LKC, show me the Mazzotti, and I probably would have given it a shot. Uh, at some point with the AWA, I knew that it wasn't going to last long. Uh, you, you could see the steady decline, unfortunately. Um, so I probably would have gone for the right amount of money. Okay. 
Yeah, and that's just one of those, you know, personal preferences. But yeah, if you don't have a family, don't have a whole lot of commitments, uh, I can understand wanting to take a, a shot. Uh, the next one for you, Mick, from Bruce Berg. When you were a ringside photographer, I'm sure you had some close calls when the action got out of hand. Do any come to mind? Yeah, close calls. I mean, aside from, uh, you know, fans throwing beer bottles at the ring and, and just missing the photographer, unless they were throwing them at us, I don't know. Um but I remember a couple of times, and once as a photographer, I was, and believe it or not, the lens cap was was off the camera uh, when I was taking a shot of Jerry Blackwell. I was following him in a tag team match, uh, you know, camera in hand, and all of a sudden I looked up into the camera lens, and I see this big black blur. Like, did my battery die in the cameras? I, I didn't know what had happened. I looked up just in time to see 468-pound Jerry Blackwell coming over the top turnbuckle right in the direction of uh, this photographer at ringside. And I don't know, my knees have always been shot. I don't know how I got the hell out of the way. You wouldn't have been able to tell me from a spilled uh, beer glass uh, on the uh, on the ringside floor. Uh, so I do recall that, and I and Jerry looked at me actually when he got up, and he, and Jerry made some comment about you know, well you say you saved yourself, didn't you, son? And the other guy that I would like to talk about the close calls is the Mister Magoo of professional wrestling, and I'm talking about Stan the Lariat Hanson. Now Stan. There's not a lot of people in, in the world, let alone in wrestling, that have eyesight as bad as I do. But Stan Hansen was one of the guys, and he would come out to that ring swinging that lariat and that cowbell. And Stan could not see a foot in front of him. And I'm telling you, he didn't care. I, I know that a, another ringside photographer got whacked right between the shoulder blades, full throttle. Uh, with that uh, with that cowbell of stands, you could hear it whistling by your ear uh, if you got too close and you you always had to stay on your toes when Stan Hansen was at ringside. So, yes, I feared for my life even more so than I did with Bruiser Brody when Stan Hansen was swinging the bell. Were you ever smartened up, Mick, when you were a photographer? Did they ever tell you, hey, you know, we're going to be doing this or we're going to be doing that to kind of give you a little bit of a heads up? To either no. protect protect yourself or a picture, nothing. No, no, they did not. Uh, you know, again, Vern, even back in the 80s, you know, Vern was real protective. He wouldn't even smarten up his own cameraman, you know, let alone a, a, a ringside photographer. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, you know, you, you stay around the business long enough, you kind of get a feel for who's going to be doing what and where, and you, you get the hell out of Dodge if you're in a bad yeah. position. No, they never, ever smarten us up, no. Right. Uh, this one's actually for me uh, from Tom Olson. I attended the MAW Women in Nations show recently, had a chance to get a picture taken with one of my all-time favorites and Barry Darsa. Any chance of getting him on the podcast? I'd be interested in hearing why he never worked for the AWA, uh, even though he was a Minnesota guy. Uh, to answer your your question here, Tom, uh, yeah, we, we are working on uh, on Barry uh, I've been in contact with him a little bit, so we are going to eventually, uh, we're going to get him on when schedule's working and we got a lot of things that we've got planned. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out the right time that works for everybody. 
But uh, as you can see right there, maybe that's what people know him most as is uh, Demolition Smash, uh, along with Bill Eady, who was uh, Axe. But yeah, uh, Barry Dorsa, uh, he's so many different uh, kind of transformations and gimmicks over the years. But yeah, I'm looking forward to, to talking to him, you know, about being a Minnesota guy because there's there's a lot to get to with Barry Dorsa. And I know you guys, especially you, Mick, I, I know that, uh, you know, he's a, he's a dear friend of yours. And, and I know you've spoken very, very highly of him. Barry is great. I mean, in and out of the ring, the consummate professional, he did everything they asked him to do. As silly as some of the gimmicks were, you know, whether he was golfing or the repo man or, you know, whatever he was, um, Barry Darso is the real deal. And one of my favorite guys in and out of the ring in the, in the wrestling business. All right. Uh, here's another question here is I'm going to bring, uh, bring me up there. There we go. Uh, from, uh, Jenny Rahm, uh, my grandfather used to do maintenance at the Dickman hotel downtown. Uh, I've heard you talk about your time. You spent there as a teenager to get autographs from the wrestlers. Who was the first wrestler you ran into? And there, are there any funny stories you can share about the Dickman experience? Hold on. Hold on. Before we talk about the experience, yeah. Yeah. Did you what? just say two, three times, Dickman? Yeah. You, That's how it's written. What? Uh, well, yeah, I did have some experiences at the Dykeman Hotel uh, in downtown Minneapolis. I didn't was- say Dykeman. I said Dickman. Well, if it's a Dickman, then I wasn't there. But, you know, the, if it's the Dykeman, then I was there, and I can okay. speak to that. Uh, it, ho- oh, boy. it housed the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club for so many years, 605 Dykeman Hotel. God, many times I got off the elevator on the sixth floor, and I could ha- you already hear Wally Carbo down the hall. God damn it, Vern, that's a horrible idea. Um, but at any rate... I, I was going to the Dykeman Hotel when I was a teenager and uh, a long, long time ago. The first couple of guys that I actually saw, one of them was Reggie Parks, uh, the man with the iron stomach. So this would have gone back to 1964. Got off the elevator on the sixth floor, and here I'm starstruck. There's a, not only a wrestler, but he, boy, he is live and in color, Reggie Parks. And he was talking to another gentleman at the time and if we can get his picture up on the screen because this was kind of an interesting scenario where is he there he is golden moose cholak or yukon moose cholak uh they were standing conversing right outside the outside the elevator door and the interesting thing was about an hour later they had a program on uh WTCN TV, the live TV show where they did an angle uh, with Moose Cholak giving Reggie Parks his El Squasho uh, flying body press. And, uh, you know, they, they got a little nervous. Even though we were just teenagers, they looked at me and Reggie said, I'm just his manager. You know, don't don't get the wrong idea here. But those were the first two guys that I happened to see as a kid uh, coming off the elevator there at the Dykeman Hotel. Another guy, now this, I put the dog up for a reason, because you talk about stories at the Dykeman Hotel. The guy that I would go down there with every week, friend, uh, childhood friend, Bruce Buckstein, we would spend all afternoon in the lobby of the Dykeman waiting for the guys to come in and get their autographs. Well, 
we see Mad Dog on the sixth floor. He's going to get on the elevator. And we were scared. We didn't want to get on the elevator with the dog. So we took the stairs down to the lobby. Well, what had happened was that a couple of other kids, and this was not us, decided they were going to be cute, and they pushed the buttons on every floor. So instead of just a straight nonstop for Mad Dog, he had to stop five, four, three. Well, we got the hell out of Dodge because we figured the dog was going to blame us for setting those <laughs> setting those, those elevator stops on every floor. We actually ran out onto 6th Street out of the Dykeman Hotel. The dog was leaving the hotel at the same time, so we thought, sure, this guy is coming after us. But he wasn't. He kind of looked in our direction. I think we said we didn't do it, waved our hands or what have you. But uh, that would have been very interesting. And damn those kids, wherever they are. I hope they went to jail. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Uh, this one for you, Joe, from uh, Mike Scholar. During your time in the AWA, were there any wrestlers uh, that were easy to work with? And was there someone uncooperative or hard to work with. I, I have to assume that maybe this is like production wise. I'm, I'm not really sure exactly uh, where we're going, but hopefully this is something that you can answer. Uh, I can say uh, very quickly that I really did not have any personal issues with any talent. Uh, yes, some were better than others, but the easiest to work with because A, he was so good um and was always coming and say, uh, coming up to me if I was uh, running camera uh, for interviews or if we're in a locker room or he'd come into the control room uh, he'd ask me hey what you know what do you think anything you can uh, suggest and it still amazes me to this day that he did that because it was the one and only Nick Bockwinkle I mean the, he was so good I if I'm if I'm floor directing slash running the camera and I would you know give the 30 and then I would start the countdown much like Larry Nelson I'm like there's no way he's gonna finish every single time he was able to to, to stop in time Nick would always stop to leave the wrap up to whether it was Resnick or Larry Nelson or Bischoff whomever to do it uh, they needed to do um, the most difficult um, and I don't mean this in a bad way towards him. Um, and it would have been later on, um, Vern Gagne. Um, and I say that because uh, Vern, I think, knew the AWA was running on, on fumes. And throw in the uh, eminent domain case with his place on Lake Minnetonka, not a lot was going right for Vern. And there were times you could just tell he'd come into the office and it's like, um, yeah, we're, we're going to stay away from Vern for a little while. Um, you know, he, he just dealt with something. Um, but that was, that was really about it. I mean, in general terms, Vern was great to work with. Um, he, he really was. He hard nose and so forth, but, um, he would have been the one mm -hmm. every other talent. I didn't have any issues with any other talent during my time there. And uh, last question here for you, Mick, from John Peck in Connecticut. Thanks, John, for uh, uh, checking us out out in uh, Connecticut. 
Uh, first of all, I love what you all do on AWA Unleashed. Thank you for that. Uh, my question is, what are your thoughts on the Dangerous Alliance and their short stint in the AWA? I thought Paulie Dangerously and Adrian Adonis in particularly uh, had really good chemistry. I would totally agree. And again, it's a matter of timing. You know, it's it's 1987, 1988. Uh, Adrian had come off his uh, long, long time run in WWF, and he looked considerably different than when he was in the AWA, the first go around with Jesse Ventura. Uh, Paul Heyman, uh, Paulie Dangerously at the time, was just getting his feet wet as a big time talker in uh, the wrestling business. I thought their chemistry was great. They got tremendous heat. But again, it's a matter of timing. Uh, Adrian was not here for very long at all. As a matter of fact, he was tragically killed the next July, mm-hmm. July of 1988. And Paul E. decided to go for greener pastures. Got a little uh, frustrated with some of the things that were going on in the AWA. But I agree, for the time, considering the AWA mm-hmm. is on its last legs, they got tremendous heat. They were a shining light in the in the dark days of the AWA. And that telephone that Paul always had, my God, what range he had with that cordless phone. Didn't he? Amazing. He was ahead of his time. It was like, uh, you know, AT&T was delivering for him in Arena Zip. But every phone that he had was just an old cordless phone, didn't even have the battery in it. Well, I mean, did he, you know, how many calls did he really make on that? How many calls do you think he made on that phone? What does uh, Joel look like, Alexander Graham Bell? For God's sake, you know, all I know is the greatest moment in wrestling history is when Paul E. took that phone and hit Jason Hervey over the head <laughs> with it in WCW. And I mean, Jason Hervey, talk about his bell being rung. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, he actually thought he was back in the '60s with the Wonder Years. Sure did. He was seeing Winnie. He was seeing Winnie Cooper for real. <laughs> All right. <laughs> actually, that was that was more Fred Savage's, you know, girl. But I digress. By the way, I, I was a Winnie Cooper fan growing up. Hey, uh, that's going to do it for the uh, No DQ and A this week, guys. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to do it again next week. I want to thank everybody for uh, for all the support. You can see right there if you've had a, if you have a, a question. Uh, You can email Mick or you can actually go to our uh, AWA Unleashed fans page. Be sure to, uh, to, you know, subscribe to our YouTube. Uh, We're on Pandora, Spotify, Google, but YouTube, you guys, is is by far and away the best way to go ahead and support us. Uh, That just seems, that seems to be what we really are trying to focus on right now. We love the audio version as well. So however uh, you ingest this podcast, uh, also thank uh, SodaStick, uh, SodaStickCO.com. Um, if you're looking for a, a good hoodie as well, something for Christmas, you guys, uh, go to SodaStickCO.com. Uh, go to AWA Unleashed. We've got black and white T-shirts. we got black and white hoodies. Uh, you can get your name inscribed. You can get it personalized. Use Unleash, the promo code, for 15% off. Uh, also, 7th Avenue Pizza. Uh, before we got started, I actually had a, a, the brand-new breakfast pizza. It is fan. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course I did. We're not going to do a shout out here, guys, um, because we're going to do them next week. But I think we're I think we're good for this week. Do I have to Sound change good? clothes? I don't know. Do we have to see you naked? <laughs> <laughs>